0: at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. We give you a warm welcome this morning. And yes, yeah, warmer than outside anyway. And uh, we're glad that you're here. Happy New Year to you. I want to welcome you to 2023 and uh, no better place to be than with God's people worshiping God, who is the God of all the ages, and he's kept us this last year, and he will again this year as he sees fit, and we're grateful for that. We uh, are able to say a word of uh, welcome also to a new member of the Yanga family. little Phoebe May Yanga has made her entrance at 234, This morning, couldn't wait to start the new year. And uh, we're praying that uh, a little Lorch baby will come along soon as well. Um, I know her mom is for sure. Uh, She's pretty well on the way, uh, not hurrying along at the moment as we know, but uh, anyway, we hope she will come soon. So Uh, we, we will see. Let's open our Bibles to Song of Solomon and chapter 6, please. Song of Solomon and chapter 6. we will read this chapter. We just have a few more to go here. Song of Solomon 6. Apparently, the characters speaking these words are the daughters of Jerusalem. Where has your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? And then uh, the... A bride responds, my beloved has gone to his garden, to the bed of spices, to feed his flock in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. And then the groom, oh, my love, you are as beautiful as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me for they have overcome me. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Gilead. Don't you just love those likenesses, this lover's language here? Going down from Gilead, your teeth are like a flock of sheep which have come up from the washing. Everyone bears twins, and none is barren among them. Like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The daughters saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fairer as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? And then verse 11, I went down to the garden of nuts to see the verdure of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed before I was even aware my soul had made me as the chariots of my noble people. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. What would you see in the Shulamite, as it were, the dance of the two camps? Well... We're not preaching that today, so I don't have to get you the meaning of all those phrases. there uh, There are some difficult ones there, to be sure. So we'll leave that for another time, as God permits. And this morning, for the rest of our time together, save for the closing hymn and benediction, I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke. Please, the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, in chapter two, starting in verses thirty-six through thirty-eight, is where our focus will be this morning. And I'll read these verses for you, thirty-six through thirty-eight. We're looking today at the uh, message, uh, another message in my series, "Perspectives on Christmas." This one, the perspective of Anna, the prophetess, on the birth of the Messiah, and. The one, one truth that I pulled out of this and put at the top of the notes, Christmas is a delight to those who are looking for redemption. So I'm not specifically doing a New Year message today, although what we're going to find is there are a lot of things in this portion that will remind us of our responsibilities as Christian people before God. The text says in verse 36, Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel or Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Now, we should back up just a little bit to get a running head start at this, because when it says she came in that instant, it's obviously an important matter of timing here, and we've overlooked that by leaving some of the verses out of the reading. So we'll go back and look, starting at verse uh, chapter 2, verse number 20, or 19, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Remember, we had looked at that when we considered uh, Christmas from the perspective of the shepherds, And the shepherds returned and uh, told the things that they had seen. And then in verse 21, the Bible says, and when the eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, they went and had his uh, circumcision done, and his name was called Jesus. So the official naming ceremony, if you will, was then on day eight of the birth, and so uh, basically... Today would have been the eighth day, you know, counting inclusively from the day of the birth, that would have happened a week later uh, in jesus' little life, his young life, and so the parents did that and then it says in verse twenty two now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, she brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, this is a separate incident, okay this is not on day eight this is sometime later, and uh, we'll show you uh, in a minute here, just uh, in the flow of the message, just how much later uh, that is. But there's a separate incident here. They come into the temple to uh, do according to the law for the child and for uh, Mary, make purification because of the birth and also because he's the firstborn. And then when they are doing this, two people encounter them. Two people. You remember the the name of the first one? A very godly man named Simeon. And Simeon was like Anna. Uh, He gives a little prophecy here about, uh, first of all, he's thankful that God allowed him to see the Messiah, even though he probably wasn't going to live too much longer into this young lad's life or see the crucifixion or the resurrection or those things. But he saw him with his own eyes, And then he made a prophecy about him bringing light to the Gentiles, uh, about a sword piercing through Mary's heart, and these things that he, uh, he exposits here through verse 35. And then in verse 36 and 37, we have a description of who Anna is, and then she comes onto the scene at that instant, on that very day, at that very time, when the parents bring the child in to accomplish for him and they, they probably weren't there for hours on end. You know, they had other business to attend to in the temple. I mean, the priests, the other sacrifices to make, other children to, um, to uh, make purification for and mark the, their firstborn status and, and, and all of that. And so it was in that moment that God brought Simeon and Anna to visit with the parents and with the baby Jesus. Now, we start out by looking at who Anna is to get an idea of what her approach to this whole matter was. Anna is the Greek version of the name Hannah. And Hannah derives from a root in Hebrew, which is the root that's uh, like a hard H sound with an N, like chen, favor or grace. And that's, so that's what her name is. She, her, she was in modern English, we might say grace or Anna or Hannah, That's, they all have the same derivation. Like Hannah, who was in, in 1 Samuel 1 and 2, remember Hannah, Elkanah, Mother Samuel, all of that, the same, the same name, just the Greek version. And she's designated here in verse 22 by Luke as a prophetess, a prophetess. Now, this doesn't bother our human author here at all. You know, We would probably kind of say, oh, a prophetess, like today, what, what is that all about? Or somebody that designates themselves as a prophet pretty much means that they're a leader of a cult. Um, that's not the case here. It didn't bother him nor the Holy Spirit who uh, in, superintended the writing of Scripture in this case uh, because in that era there were some prophets. Now, rare, however, because if you think about it, when was the last time that there was a prophet who was well-known to the people of Israel. Well, it would have been Malachi several centuries earlier. And now there's about to break out a new round of revelation, which we call the New Testament. You have Gabriel appearing to Mary, Gabriel giving revelation to the parents of John the Baptist, to to, uh, Zacharias, uh, and several other incidents regarding the birth of the Lord, and fleeing to Egypt, and coming back, and going to Nazareth, and And then Simeon making a prophecy, Zacharias uh, putting out his Benedictus, Mary the Magnificat, new revelation from God pouring out left and right. And so nothing should surprise us here. Now she need not, this Anna need not be a predictor of the future to be called a prophetess. She could simply be a woman who is diligent in her study of the law and active in proclaiming it to others. She may have had insight that others didn't have, insight maybe given to her directly by God. But it was clear to those around her that she was a very godly woman, very close to God, and had insight into the Word, which many of them did not. Have you ever known a person who seems to have insight into the Bible that you're just like, huh, wish I had thought of that? That was cool, Uh, that was neat. Uh, we only get that by repeated uh, kind of exposure and application and thinking and praying about the scriptures. Was she a prophetess in the kind of miraculous sense or only in the normal sense? We don't know for sure the answer to that question. We tend to avoid the terminology of prophet or prophetess today because of the excesses of the charismatic movement, people claiming to have a word from the Lord and it's some you know, made-up pronouncement uh, or some generic thing that could mean many different things in many different circumstances. They portray themselves as direct channels of divine revelation when they're not. God has not been pleased to give the gift of prophecy today. That's told to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 8. But uh, it's, it's true that Bible preachers could be called prophets after a fashion. You could call me a prophet, don't, but really what it means is a proclaimer, somebody who is not necessarily predicting the future, but proclaiming. And in fact, I don't think Anna is really involved in predicting the future at all. She's looking for the fulfillment of things that were predicted in the past. Isn't that odd? She's not a predictor. She's a proclaimer of that which was promised in the past and was to come to pass in the present day situation. She was a prophet focused on looking back and awaiting the promises of God to be fulfilled, not looking forward to new promises that God would make to them. Now, for uh, kind of sake of completeness, I just want to mention, you know, in the Bible, there are several women who were prophets, or prophetesses, it's a little harder to say that, so forgive me if I put the generic form instead of prophetesses, but there was Miriam. Remember Miriam, Moses' sister? You remember Deborah and Gideon? Deborah was a prophet, it says. There's another one, very um, less known, Huldah. Then there's Isaiah's wife. You might remember that from reading in Isaiah 7 about the prophecy of the virgin birth, and then later on, uh, the, the prophet's wife, She's a prophet too, the Bible indicates, uh, has a child. Um, and then you have in Acts chapter 21, it makes a brief mention of Philip's four daughters. How about that? You've got four daughters, brother. Uh, he had four daughters and they were prophets, prophetesses in uh, Acts 21. Now, there are also two false prophetesses mentioned as well, Noadiah and Jezebel. And that rounds out the complete list of them in the scriptures, Jezebel in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 20. So just because uh, a, a woman is standing in the pulpit, say, or making proclamations as if she is a prophetess, doesn't give her a pass just because she's of the fairer sex. She's just as much a false teacher if she's a false prophet as any other false teacher, uh, any other man would be a, a false teacher. So they, you know, we don't give a pass on that deal. Now, as far as uh, Anna is concerned, we carry on in reading in verse 36. It says, she was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. This was not the priestly tribe. Asher had settled to the far north of the promised land, along the Mediterranean sea coast, West of Naphtali, just north of Mount Carmel, which was near the sea coast as well. And, and if you think of the Sea of Galilee in your mind, kind of you're familiar with how that looks with the, um, the uh, Jordan River and the Dead Sea downside, Look, think of that in, from your perspective, Asher would be from the Sea of Galilee kind of up this way, a little north and west, right along the sea coast in the far northern end of the nation of Israel, And so that's where she was, uh, that's where she hailed from. I I note here, too, that when we talk about the name of a person, like I did earlier about Hannah, Grace, or Anna, sometimes we kind of focus our attention on the person themselves. But she didn't give herself that name. Fenuel and his wife gave her that name. And so when you think about the names of people in the Bible, think about the parents who assigned those names to them on day eight for a boy and maybe the same for girls. I don't know when they did that for the young ladies, but these are parents of faith, parents who have some idea of the grace or favor of God. And so it is with us when we name our children. We have an idea that we are, you know, thankful or that the child is a gift from the Lord or We've been uh, God's heard our prayer, Samuel, that sort of thing, for the child, and uh, you have a Bible name like we just uh, met this morning, Phoebe, that's a nice name it's out of Scripture. Um, so think of the parents and their hopes and dreams for their child when they name that child, and and perhaps and hopefully the child will live up to the name that it is assigned in its early days. This lady was very old. Now, that's not nice to say, is it? But the Bible says it, so I'm going to say it. <laughs> it's the truth. Uh, it says that she was of a great age. Well, I guess it doesn't say she was old. It just says her age was great. That's great. No, it really means that it was. she was uh, very aged. She lived with a husband seven years from her virginity and then It has this note about was being a widow of about eighty-four years. So the text describes a woman who was married for how long? Hmm. That's not a long marriage. Can you imagine a young woman marrying the love of your life? Maybe a man a year or two older than you, you're seventeen. By the time you're 24 years old, your husband is dead and you're a widow. that Think about what that did to her. It's not just words on a page. This is a real human being who suffered traumatic loss. You shouldn't lose your husband when he's 26 and you're 24. She may have been married when she was 13, and by the time she was 20, she was a widow. How terrible, what a grief for a young woman that her lover, provider, protector, closest friend is taken away at such a young age. And then in the supposition I've given, if she was 17, she was widowed at 24, she lived for 60 more years until she was 84 years old as recorded in this passage of scripture. That means because the Lord, the best we can tell, the Lord was born between six B.C. and, say, 2 or 1 B.C. We don't have exact, you know, kind of coordinates on that. She was born at least 84 B.C., if not a little earlier, even as early as 90 years before, B.C. You know, or B.C.E., as they call it now. If her father had her when he was 20, then he was born 100 years before Christ or more. And I looked on the timeline just to give you an idea. During that time, the book of 2 Maccabees was written in their lifetime. Julius Caesar rose to power. The Romans began to collect tribute on on the land we call Palestine and arose in ascendancy in their reign throughout the Mediterranean world. That's what happened in her life. Can you imagine those events occurring in your day? So imagine this, ladies, you're a young woman, your husband dies, and you dedicate yourself to serving the Lord for the rest of your life. That is indeed dedication. Let me just mention a thing about widows and young widows. The Bible does talk about this in 1 Timothy chapter 5. The, the normal or usual advice for a young widow is, is to what? What does the Bible say? To marry, to bear children, to manage the home. That would be a totally righteous and good thing for a young widow to do. It does not say anything about your dedication to your previous spouse who died. In other words, if you remarry, that doesn't say that you weren't dedicated to your prior spouse. It just says that you're following biblical instructions. You know the, the nature of your heart as a young, younger woman. You know the world out there. It simply means that if, you know if you're the marrying type you know what I mean by that? If you don't have the gift of singleness before when you were married the first time and your spouse dies, what changed that made you not the marrying type now? Nothing changed. You're still the same person you were. Although, of course, with the passage of time and if, it, if your spouse passes away when you're very old, you may say, well, the time for that has passed. You know, I'm, I'm fine to not be married. I'm not a younger uh, widow or widower now. Possibly there are other men out there who would meet the criteria of a godly and loving husband and companion for such a young woman. Remarriage after widowhood reduces the chances of the young widow becoming tempted outside of marriage, having already had the joys of a marriage relationship and its intimacy, and reduces the possibility that is remarrying would reduce the possibility that she makes a short-sighted vow, You know, I'm just going to serve the Lord. And then a year later, she's like, oh, I'm so lonely. And then she pulls back from that and, and remarries. I think Paul addresses that issue in 1 Timothy 5, 11. But in the case of this woman, she was able to avoid those temptations and dedicated herself to service. She's presented to us as a very godly woman, one who is faithful to her husband, faithful to her God, and so close to God that she gave herself to him in service for all of those years. You know, you might think that she's an example of a of a nun. She's not a nun. She's not a Catholic, okay? She's one, however, who did dedicate herself to the service of the Lord. And that's not that doesn't mean that that's the pattern for everybody. Like, oh, if I don't do that, I'm not as dedicated to the Lord. Don't think like that. You have to fit into the program that God has designed for you And for many young women and young men, that means marrying and having a family. I mean, the human race does have to carry on, and we have to raise the next generation and be in the church and all of that. And there's no requirement at all that uh, people dedicated to service of God are are celibate or are single, none whatsoever. Um, Perhaps... uh, she had the blessing of having had a wealthy husband or a family who were wealthy that, so she could live for the remainder of her days in dedicated service to the Lord and not have to work outside the home. We, we simply don't know that, but we do know she was a very righteous woman. And Anna's service was centered on the temple. You recall, it says that she did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And so, although I don't present her as a model, like, you know, you need to just, you know, live in the church all the time, uh, I think there's something here for us. How dedicated are we to the things of God, the work of God, the place of God? And the temple was where all Old Testament worship was centered. The location and the heart of the worshiper were critical, Certain things could only be done at the temple. You could only offer animal sacrifices at that particular place. You couldn't just do it anywhere. The problem in the Old Testament was when people offered sacrifices under every green tree and on every high hill, remember, they were idolatrous sacrifices. Those weren't proper sacrifices. And so the temple was the place to be. Now, that's opened in the church era so that proper worship can happen anywhere at any time worship is still a matter of the heart but not so much of location however let me encourage you that although we don't have a spot where we have to worship you should have one or more spots where you do worship where you set aside the distractions you know we don't have we don't have coffee shops and big screen TVs and CNN news on the wall and all of that here that's out We're here to worship Christ. We set aside the world and all of its distractions and all of its nonsense and all of its noise and news and everything else. And you need a place like that, too, in your home, might I say. Have you got a walk-in closet? You don't have a walk-in closet. You know, you have a a pantry. I don't care where. You have a little sitting nook, you know, you have... uh, a tower, a round tower with windows out the top where you can set up there and pray pray and worship God. And, and most of us don't have that, but uh, that'd be kind of neat, wouldn't it? A nice cozy little warm tower lookout place to pray and worship God and read the Bible. You need to have places like that because there are so many distractions everywhere. You know, that may not be in the kitchen. It may not be in your office, you know, for me. Sometimes I have to get out of, I can't be in my office here or my office at home. I have to walk somewhere else or be somewhere else. Several times I go out and hide in the college library. (laughs) Nobody can get me there. (laughs) Uh, You know, you need that. If you don't, you're going to be spiritually malnourished. You're going to be impoverished. Anna practically lived at the temple. In fact, she might have lived at the temple. They might have set aside a room... In the, in the side you know, kind of place where they had quarters for the priests or whatever for her because she was a prophetess. Or maybe she lived so closely next door that she was practically there all the time, night and day. Boy, it's nice to come here sometimes, and this doesn't happen frequently for me, but if I'm very burdened about something and come and, and uh, be in this room in the middle of the week, nothing else no sound you know and just be able to pray but you know the world thinks that's weird i mean what would you think of somebody's like so dedicated they decide i'm going to just go to you know a monastery or whatever i'm just going to serve god i'm going to be at the church all the time i'm going to live next door i'm going to move next door to the church i'm going to be there i'm going to serve I'm going to reach out, I'm going to pray for hours a day. You know, people probably looked at John the Baptist that way. I mean, this guy is strange. He dresses strange, strangely, sorry. He eats a very odd diet, you know. No thank you for that diet. Uh, The honey part's okay. Not so much the locusts. But so dedicated to serving the Lord, living out in the desert like a hermit, Preaching the word of God. But, you know, John the Baptist and Anna weren't the ones that were mentally deficient. You know, oh, they're crazy. No, actually, they knew a whole lot more than you and I. Or the secular mind, which thinks that it knows everything, but don't, doesn't understand the things of God. They're the ones that are missing a screw or two. Not the people of God who are serving him faithfully. And a service focused on what things? It says, fastings and prayers night and day. Now, these are expressions well known, known to us as expressions of devotion to God, uh, if, even if they're not consistently practiced by God's people. Those who fast have uh, time and mental acuity to focus on the things of God and even pray better, more, and demonstrate that they don't live by bread alone, but instead by close fellowship with God. She was another in the long line of Old Testament prophets who did the same. You see Nehemiah praying. You see Daniel praying. You see David praying. Throughout the Old Testament, these prophets prayed. And she came into the temple, as we move into her message now, and saw that baby Jesus was presented in the temple Mary was completing her 40 days of purification. There was a, a sacrifice required, according to Leviticus, when uh, a mother gave birth because of the birth, the flow of blood and all of that. Some, for some reason, God said there has to be a sacrifice for that. And also, then, uh, and that timeline differed for if it was a boy or a girl. And if there was a firstborn, then there was a special uh, deal with that. And so you see that in Exodus 13. We obviously don't have time to go there, but those things were practiced in days of old. Um, So Simeon grabbed up the baby and held the baby in his arms, gave a prophecy, and right then Anna enters the scene. God gave her a blessed reward for her constancy of service. Before God. She got to see the Messiah before she died. And then she told others of him. You know, it's no small thing, I think, that Anna and Simeon knew the Old Testament so well that they could see what the Messiah would be like and what needed for him to happen, uh, what needed to happen for him to come to Israel. Undoubtedly, they longed for God's people to repent and be ready to make straight the way of the Lord. That would happen when John the Baptist came and preached that very message. You know, for me, I think of the the reward that she received, and I think, boy, it would sure be nice if... See, what she was actually doing was saying, I know the Old Testament promises, and the next thing that appears to be on the calendar is that Christ is going to appear. For us... We know the New Testament promises. We know the next thing that's going to happen is, wouldn't it be nice if we were alive when that happened? Wouldn't that be a nice reward for your and my faithful service? I trust faithful service. A little challenge for us in those words. To see the rapture with my earthly eyes in this body. He may not do that, of course. That's up to God completely, but... It would be a nice reward, wouldn't it? When she saw the Messiah, the first words were to thank God. She gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. She knew somehow that this one was the consolation of Israel, the Redeemer, the Savior, the King, the Messiah. Like we said last week about the angels, remember? They identified him. This is the Messiah. There needs to be no question about who this is. Probably Simeon and Anna knew each other, you think? They were always around the temple, bumping into each other, worshiping, praying, praying together. Um, But there were others as well. She spoke of, of Jesus to whom? See that? Do you, do you class yourself with those ones who look for redemption in Jerusalem? Are you there? Are you concerned about that above all else? The phrase marks off a certain kind of person who is different than other people. There are people looking for money, and then there are those looking for redemption. Redemption true biblical redemption. There are those looking for entertainment and peace and man-made solutions to the world problems. There are those who are looking out for themselves. There are those who want to redeem themselves. But there's a certain kind of individual who's looking for redemption from God the Father through the Son. Christians are that kind of person who's looking for redemption. Your redemption draws nigh The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Awake, right, Paul says. The day of salvation is nearer than when we first believed. You're looking for redemption, I trust. Anna spoke about this baby Messiah to all those people, many of whom she probably knew quite well also. They would be interested to hear what her insight was on this issue. Remember that person I asked you about that has insight into the Bible? And you're like, man, I want to hear what they have to say about this, about this piece of news or this whatever has happened. I'd like to get their insight on it. These people who were looking for redemption were interested in what she had to say. She knew the Old Testament prophets had spoken of this one, and she was awaiting his arrival. Now she could speak openly about him to all who were awaiting his arrival. They would be keen to find out about Joseph and Mary and the baby. You know what? They would be people who care about Christmas, not about the commercial Christmas, about the Christian Christmas. They would be fascinated to hear about the angelic announcements and Zacharias' prophecy and John the Baptist's birth and, and the baby and the shepherds and Joseph and Mary and all the rest. They would be fascinated. Tell me more. Tell me everything you can. You know what? That's what Luke is doing. Having understood from the very beginning, I give you an orderly account, O oh most excellent Theophilus, of all the things that happened among us so that you might be fully instructed in your faith. That's what Luke is doing here. So when we read the short account about Anna, you, know, you can just kind of read through it and it's three verses and two of them are background about her and one is you know, what happened and it's kind of easy and quick. But think about Christmas from her perspective. And then ask yourself some serious questions. Do we care about what Christmas really means? Are we like those who look for redemption in Jerusalem? Or do we not care so much about those things? You know, Christianity is not just about believing some facts. It's about allying yourself, allying yourself, about connecting yourself, about uh, switching your loyalty from the things of this earth to the Savior of whom we're speaking, this Messiah. And and as Psalm two says, kiss the Son. Do homage to the Son, worship the Son, the anointed one, because he's going to be the king and he's going to be your judge. Are we as keen as they were to hear from Anna her aged wisdom? Or do we throw all that aged wisdom to the side of the road and say, ah, fooey on it, I'll make my own way. I know better as I barrel down the highway of life, oblivious to what our elders have learned and what God has promised to do in the world. Or are we like Anna who served God diligently for decades? I mean, she could have just said, why did God let my husband die? I'm not going to serve him. What God would do that? And for 60-plus years, she served God with all of her heart. She gave thanks to God when she came in at that moment. Do we give thanks to God? Do we have good insight like she did into God's Word? Are we... What's the word I'm looking for? Are we dead set to be as faithful to God in our old years as Anna was. You know, sometimes people kind of fall off a little bit. They've walked with the Lord a while, and and then it just kind of droop off, you know. They taught Sunday school. They were active in the church in the 30s and 40s, maybe 50s and 60s. They slip away, and something happens to them, or in the church, and they get upset, and they become unsanctified, and they leave. Are you going to express your faith that way? Are you going to express our faith in the manner that God ordains in this era in connection with a church family? Or you just walk away from the things of God? Anna would counsel you, my friend, to look for redemption and to live for Him who died for your sins. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, oh, how I pray that In 2023, not only our women, but also our men, our young ladies and boys will look a lot more like Anna than they have in the past. May we renew our vigor and and strength by your spirit and by your grace to live like Anna, dedicated to God, always about the things of the church, always looking for the connections to redemption and and what Christ is doing in the world and watching and waiting for the rapture and praying that the kingdom of God would come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, would you train us up that we would be young Annas, full of grace and favor from heaven. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.